Welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. This is the Management Headache Series. We may use that as a working title. And the whole part of this is that we're going to try and have about a 30-minute discussion, 30 to 40-minute discussion, about a manager's particular issues in the workplace. And I think what we're going to find is this conversation is going to go in a lot of different directions and maybe even take longer than 30 minutes. I want to welcome Alan from company ABC Limited. (laughs) We've decided to use some anonymity here to allow Alan to speak as freely as possible and to talk about some challenges that he faces. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be a part of this series that you're kicking off. So yeah, anything we can do to help and explore. And I appreciate the opportunity to be coached as well. It's a very valuable resource I've come to find out in the last few years in particular. So thank you. I'm glad to hear that. So why don't we dive into your particular challenges? I know that there's a few that you mentioned in your email, one of them relating to growing pains. These are business growing pains, which I'd like to hear about. Another one relating to your role, basically, I think, in terms of what you started with and what you have today. And then you also mentioned some challenges with a coworker. So yeah, if you want to give us a little bit of background and then maybe pick one of those to start with. Mm-hmm. So relatively small company, a total of 13 employees. I make number 13, 11 full-time, two part-time administrative folks, three partners, and what, six to seven, let's call them hourly workers that are, at least they're not management, they're producers in the company. And my role is new. My title is client success manager. And one of the reasons that I was brought on is they eclipsed $2 million in revenue last year for the first time. They've been slowly growing. It's about a 12-year-old company. And they have identified that in order to continue to grow at the pace that they've been growing, they can't continue to function and operate the way that they were. I think it goes back to the comment that you made earlier, what got you here won't get you there. And there's becoming some, I don't know if it's resistance is the right word, but it seems as though the solution from the partners, we just have to standardize our processes. We need to get our processes down and make sure everybody's doing them to full and completion There becomes this, I know how to do the job. I don't need to look at the standard work instructions. But then we have outstanding tasks that haven't been completed for clients that we've onboarded since the beginning of last year because they didn't follow the task list. Well, we got a new client. So it's like the conveyor belt keeps going. And okay, Mm. we didn't get that box packaged up yet, but it's okay because we got a new box to work on. But wait a minute, we promised that we were going to close the flaps in that box and they're not done yet. And we're leaving revenue on the table because it's not done. So that's the big problem is how do we get people to finish well or, or to complete the tasks? Is it a process problem? Is it a people problem? Is it a leadership problem? So that's kind of the big issue. Let's dig into that a little bit. Let me ask you a couple more questions about it. So when you say that there's people are concerned, the leadership is concerned, that processes aren't being done, you said that as new business comes in, old business kind of, there are some holes basically in the way people are being treated or customers not getting the full service, so to speak. Is that new client, does the decision that's being made to kind of focus on the new one, is that coming from the top or is that the people in the job just trying to keep up with the new orders and essentially managing their own departments? Yeah, there's been a lot of self-management that is part of it. It's the exciting of the new ones, like, oh, we got to get them on board. You know, And so there is some of it, you know, is the owners or the partners are saying, hey, we got to get this new client on board. It just kind of, because there's not a lot of direct oversight, we do allow people to self-manage and there's not a lot of accountability, I guess. There's self-accountability. 
well, maybe you can't read it now, but I wrote accountability down just before I spoke to you about that because I was trying to figure out, well, yes, there's more money coming in. And yes, the people that run the business are going to care predominantly about new money coming in. But obviously, that is only going to be the case if they don't think they're going to screw up or lose clients on the other end once they've actually brought these customers on board. So you've got acquisition of customers, then you've got retention of customers. And what you're telling me is that the retention of customers, the quality of the service they're getting is being impacted. Is there actually any customer complaints or customer loss as a result of what you've seen? Or it's just the quality of what your organization is providing is dropping and we're not losing people, but it's just kind of affecting, I don't know, how organized they are as a team. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're losing anybody because of it, but we're not effectively serving those to the full degree that we could or said that we would because we have not fully onboarded all the requests that they made of us. And so they're happy. You know, it's like, okay, we're good. We're being taken care of on a regular basis. Things continue to work. They're not failing. But internally, as an organization, we're realizing loss because it's like we haven't turned on all these services yet, so we're not billing for them yet. Oh, right. Okay. So so you are losing money because these services would be billable to those clients that you currently have on. So it's like, hey, if the new client business slows down, we'll get to all of this and we'll start billing. But they're like, your leaders are saying, we need to be billing these people and we need to be dealing with new clients. So of course, they're looking at your processes to say, is everyone doing what they should be doing? Is everybody working as hard as they should be working? Because if everyone's working as hard as they should be working and doing everything they should be doing, and we still don't have enough bandwidth to actually manage the existing customers with the new customers, doesn't that mean you need more staff? Correct. Exactly. So have they come to that conclusion yet? Yeah. So a week before I started, they did hire another performer who's doing a great job. I mean, and that's, we have the capability to do that, but there's still this question of at what point are, we just don't know, right? We don't know what we don't know. We know people aren't scheduling themselves beyond their comfort zone. People will do the amount of work that they're comfortable with doing not the amount of work that they're willing to stretch toward. Why is that? Why is it? I don't want to generalize of all people. I bet, Alan, that your organization is finding people that will only do the minimum or is finding people that aren't stretching themselves when I bet you are the kind of person that does stretch yourself. And so I don't want to generalize to all employees that employees don't push themselves. It's just that the environment that they're in can sometimes slow down people. The environment and the leadership, or I would say maybe the bossy management that some people are around can really disincentivize people for coming up with new ideas, for going the extra mile. Sometimes the incentives aren't really there for people to work extra. And unless you own the company or have got some kind of stake in the company, that can impact how much you really want to spend putting time and energy into something. Besides the fact that there are some people that are just very internally motivated, they're going to work really, really hard to try and get promotion, try and do all these things. So it sounds like there are some people in your organization that perhaps don't really have enough incentives. There's maybe not enough carrots in front of them or enough sticks behind them. I'm not a big believer in using the stick, but inevitably there's usually things that motivate some people. It doesn't motivate all people. There's definitely internally motivated people out there. But are you saying it may not be that consistent in your organization? 
Yeah, so really good point. And I would say to that point, yeah, we do have some people who are very internally motivated, especially some of the recent hires. And age doesn't matter. We have a young recent hire and we have a very experienced recent hire. The two of those, I mean, they're go-getters. They're hungry and they want to go to work. As far as the incentive, it is a, I don't know what the right terminology is, profit sharing. There is profit sharing across the board. I don't know that it's equal across the board, but I'm pretty sure that it's not contingent upon performance. I think there's a formula for it, maybe based on experience or years or, or that kind of mentality. Again, five months old. I haven't received one of those checks yet, so I don't know quite how it works. <laughs> but that is one of the first things I thought about it, is how is the incentive structure structured in order to encourage people to do more. And again, like you said, not everybody's motivated by the same thing. Not everybody's going to be motivated by more income. I know some people are just motivated by time off. Right. Every time they earn another day off or hour off, they're taking it. And that's what motivates them. Yeah. We don't know what motivates people until we either ask them or we start noticing how suddenly their eyes light up when they're talking about something or they seem to be like really into a certain project and you didn't even realize that that was really something they cared about. And we can talk about that, certainly. But I would like to go back to the growing pains because if there are people that are not performing and they're self-managing, to me, that indicates the minimum that they need to do in order to successfully do their job doesn't really seem to be being met. Like if I know that I have to do a basic amount of work in order to do my job effectively, and then I know that there's like a stretch goal, if I do X, Y, and Z, which is really kind of going to the maximum that I could do, maybe going a bit above and beyond, and I'm going to be rewarded in some way for that, then it makes sense for me to do it. Now you could say the reward is internal, that I just want to be the best I can be. I just want to get, sure, maybe I can earn more or maybe I can get that promotion, but I just want to be the best, let's just say, executive coach I can possibly be. So I'm going to go the extra mile with every single person I work with. That's indirectly going to lead me to more money. And indirectly, it's going to lead me to have a better reputation. But directly, it's just about giving a good service to somebody. And there are people where that is enough. But most human beings need to be incentivized in order to work harder. And there will be exceptions to that. And there will be moments where it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But there will be moments where it makes a big difference. And where it makes a big difference is when the minimum is just not being met. Because these people that you're talking about, what difference does it make to them whether they complete all the tasks or they complete 80% of the tasks? It doesn't sound like anybody's holding them accountable. It just sounds like they're holding themselves accountable which is great. I love it when people hold themselves accountable. However, what do you do when people are holding themselves accountable, but they're not delivering on the results? Yeah. So I haven't seen that yet. Not much. Your people are not hitting their success metrics, right? Because you're saying that some of these existing customers' projects are not getting done. So they're kind of being pulled in two directions, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're being told from leadership, you got to deal with this new one and as you said before, like the conveyor belt of work has a few boxes that di didn't get picked up from the conveyor belt. Now they're all basically just going into the corner and piling up. Mm -hmm. The question I have is, do the people that are self-managing this, are they complaining about not being able to do their work? Not that I've heard. They're comfortable with letting it go. And why are they comfortable letting it go? No accountability. No, but you're absolutely right, Alan. You're absolutely right. Nobody is actually saying to them, wait, that's not acceptable. We need a better grade. We need a better result. There is definitely an accountability issue. 
But with accountability, a lot of people confuse accountability because they just think that some people are accountable and some people are not. I would argue that the two people that you were talking about, the new people that seem to be guns blazing, really accountable, all these things, right? I would argue that a lot of people, in fact, most people start like that. Mm -hmm. And what happens is like the organization and the way the organizations run usually impacts and sometimes their own personal challenges. Maybe sometimes they've got problems with their team. Maybe they've got problems with the manager, but usually through a series of events, they become kind of used to lower quality, start to miss deadlines, things start to erode. And because nobody's holding them accountable, it's really just up to them. And if their standards are slipping or if they're unable to maintain those standards, they really at that point need someone to jump in and say, is everything okay? What can I do to help you? Do you need more training? Do you need more support? Do you need another person working alongside you? Or are you just not able or interested to maintain the levels that we've been discussing? So Alan, I want to ask you this question. From what you can see, the people that you don't think are as what I would call internally accountable, or you could just say accountable, those people that aren't accountable, what could their managers do to help these people who, let's just say, are externally accountable, meaning, well, actually, we're saying at this point, they're not being held accountable by anybody. So how could they be held accountable? And how could their KPIs or whatever you want to call it, success metrics, could they be laid out a little bit clearer? Yeah, and that is one of the things that I've been tasked with trying to determine and figure out is be the motivator on behalf of the client. I'm the voice internally on behalf of the client in order to make sure that these things are getting done. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Again, new, five months old in this company. How to do that without being a jerk. It's like, just just do the job. You know, that's not it. It takes a long time going back to where we started with it, building that influence, trying to figure out how to gain influence because I don't have any authority producers lives you know in our performers lives like i have i don't have the title of manager above them i know influence is the right thing but in the past i've come about it over a long period of time building relationship doing the things that you said how can i help you get your work done is it just a matter of time i just need to spend more time and be more patient is it i need to be more proactive is it i need to encourage the partners to engage more yeah i mean these are all the questions i'm asking myself right they're good questions Yeah, there are good questions, Alan. I think it's not easy to know all the answers, but without knowing more information, which I'd like to learn more, it sounds like there's a bit of a parent-child dynamic happening in your organization. But in this case, the parents are really letting the kids run amok. So it's very much like Lord of the Flies down there. People are in charge of themselves, which would be great if they actually did everything they were supposed to do and could do what they were supposed to do. We're not sure, at least in this conversation, I'm not sure whether They're doing everything they could possibly do and they're out of resources and they're just not getting those resources and they've just kind of become, they're just doing the best they can and this is where we're at. It could be that, but it could also be they have been left alone to run their own thing. Quality has dropped. No one's held them accountable. And so they're not really being accountable because if they were being accountable, they'd meet their targets or they would be crying for more help and they would basically be just like embarrassed and really disappointed that they're not able to continuously do their job. Like that's typically what accountable people will behave like when they're not delivering results. And you also don't have that external accountability from the management, which would be needed to at least get them back into a position of being accountable and successful. So, you know, we can take this parent-child dynamic 
I think it's parent-child because it definitely isn't adult to adult. It's not leader-like. If it was leader-like, then yes, these people would be given the freedom to do their job. But at the same time, they'd be doing their job effectively. Because they're not doing their job effectively, it doesn't really indicate an accountable employee. So that then puts us into, well, if they're not accountable, then that means they must be parent-child relationship where someone else is holding them accountable. Well, yes, but they don't have the parent involved. The parent is just so far away from them geographically, hierarchically, whatever you want to call it. They're just not getting involved. They're just their absentee managers. They're not getting into the weeds. So I think on one level, and you can tell me if you think that what I'm saying, does that resonate at all with how you know your culture? Yes. So <laughs> it's uncanny just to hear you articulate it so well in the generic terms that we're using. Recently, the partners and I were evaluating a manager that was put in place a year and a half ago. And there's some dynamics between this particular manager and his two or three direct reports that there's just this constant, this manner of interaction that just degrades really quickly. And I'm like, man, when I first started observing it, I'm like, these three direct reports really need something. And I eventually said to the partner, I said, what if it's the manager? What if the manager is inciting or inviting this manner of interaction that is negative and derogatory? And we both thought about that for a minute. We're like, what can we do to help him realize what's happening, articulate it, and begin to set a different tone? And so it was the first conversation to go. It's not the direct reports. It's the manager. But I have yet to be able to, <laughs> I know where you're going. I see it. And do I have the influence? And I think I do. I hope I do. You got to wield it carefully because it's a sharp sword. But to be able to go to the owners and the partners and go, you guys need to step up. <laughs> so I'd like to understand the dynamic that you're talking about with that manager and the three people. Like what was actually happening in the meeting? You said there was some negative uh, It's not actually negativity. a meeting. I mean, it's just the normal routine interaction. There seems to be this bravado experience of he's very experienced. He knows what he's talking about. And there's these three younger direct reports who often seem to try to find a hole in his reasoning or a hole in his understanding or to knock him down a few pegs. And so they end up in this spiral of, yeah, but, well, but what about... They would knock down the manager, yeah. you're saying? So the manager would say something and the three direct reports would just like push back against them all the time? Yes. Interesting. And that would be uncomfortable for him or it would just be kind of like a discussion as a group? Discussion as a group. I mean, he handles it fine. It's awkward for me. I'm like, this seems like a terrible dynamic. The disrespect, the lack mm. of influence. I mean, he's definitely influencing them and they're trying to influence up in a way, but it's all just, it seems power struggle and superiority things going on there too. It didn't seem like a healthy oh, no. kind of discussion of ideas where, okay, there is some pushback, but it's really like, it didn't look like a team, is what you're saying? Absolutely not. It kind of just looked like a group of individuals trying to defend themselves? Yeah, it looked like a dogfight. People trying to be right. And kudos to them trying to find the right answer or have the right knowledge. That's what they were all going after, is trying to make sure. But it was more defensive of their right, seemingly right position, not the mutual understanding of the group. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that, we'll definitely go back to your point about what should you do, right? Because I do think there are limits to what you can do until you've done a bit more research and spoken to a few more people. But just on this topic, you know, I think when you look at a group of people and you sort of go a flight, you know, you become the fly on the wall in a meeting and obviously like you were there and you saw it. Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't know this person. I'm going to be on my best behavior. And other times they just relax and, and it's just a normal environment. And it sounds like that was kind of what you saw. 
And you can tell when you look at a group of people, you can tell how much of a team they are. I think if you sort of hit the mute button and you just kind of look at their body language and you look at the way they're communicating, you know, does it look like a team? Does it really look like a well-oiled team? Even I remember going to watch a a soccer match down in Florida with my brother-in-law. And he was telling me about, oh, this team are really good. They're they're winning. And, and, you know, they, they won the match. And afterwards, there was hardly any camaraderie between them after winning. And they won like this big game. And, and yet there was no hugging. There was no high fives. There was no like arm around someone talking about the next game. You know, like these are what teams do. This is what teams do. So when you're not in a team environment, you can tell because everybody is on their own. Everybody is just like transacting with one word or another. And you'll see clicks where one or two people seem to have a bit stronger bond, but then they don't necessarily speak to the person who runs the team. So I think the first thing you have to look at when you see a group of people that are not operating like a team, they don't sound like a team, they're not chatting, they're not respectful to one another, because a team that is respectful to one another won't talk down and negatively about every single comment. Instead, they'll say, well, I don't really understand that, or I guess I'm concerned about this. So immediately you can see that there's no team there. And when you know there's no team there, you have to look at the person running that team. That is the first place to look. It's like going into someone's home, right? And seeing the kids drawing all over the walls and being really disrespectful and yelling and everything else. You can blame the kids, but wait a second. Let's look at the parents for a second here. Have they got anything to do with this situation? (laughs) Have they cultivated it? And I'm not saying blame the parents. I'm just saying... Let's look at the parents first. Let's look at what they've created because they're the ones that are in charge. So the manager that you're describing, I would love to know, you know, how long was that? Did that manager inherit inherit that team? Is the team that you were talking about something that the manager had had for like two years? What was the timeline of when you jumped in there? Yeah. So my understanding is there wasn't a manager before. It was kind of been a flat hierarchy again, but as the company's growing, you know, or adding new employees, we're beginning to need to add these different levels. So it's all new. It's new. I mean, so the senior person of the group was elevated to the manager. Oh, so this is like a peer. So you're saying one of these specialists or individual workers, individual contributors was promoted within the group to be the leader of the group? Correct. Yeah, and so you had a team of people. Yeah, go on. Yeah, without again all the way back to where we really you know early early comment. How do you go from doer to manager? I don't know what his previous management experience is, if any, and is he getting the management input that he needs in order to do this well? I know how to coach him. <laughs> I I think I know how to do it. I know how to get there, but again, trying to find my place between as the man in the middle. I'm kind of a bolt-on, but... You can do a great deal. It's going to have to be sort of a patient, strategic, like influence model. Because as you said, you don't have the authority to be like, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And you wouldn't really want to in any case, right? But with the manager, as an example, most people don't get training in how to become a manager. (laughs) They just get promoted to become manager, Right. right? And so... Yes, you can give them books to read. You can give them workshops to attend, conferences. They can have a coach. There's mentors they can have. But majority of people don't get any of those things. They just kind of get going. And it's more of like, hey, let me know, you know, come and ask me if you have a problem. And so because people have this sense of pride, 
about their work. They've never really had to have a lot of supervision and a lot of support when they were doing their jobs, not since they were at the earliest stages of the job. And so there's a certain degree of pride and embarrassment asking for help. And it really depends on the relationship you have with your manager. Because if the manager you report to, you see them as a leader to you, and they've cultivated this wonderful relationship where you think they're competent, you look up to them in many ways, they have helped you, they've given you knowledge, they've given you good questions, that is going to make you do the same thing with the next people below you. But if you haven't had that relationship with your manager and you go into a management role, well, you're really going to go in a couple of different ways. Either you're going to copy those behaviors, in which case the next people below you are not going to be treated like followers. They're not going to be cultivated and developed into followers. It's going to be a fairly transactional relationship. You're going to expect them to do their work. And if they don't do their work, you're going to hold them accountable or you're going to replace them. And or maybe you'll ask them if everything's okay. But the amount of leadership that you're actually going to use, when I say leadership, I mean in terms of the soft skills of leadership, Mm -hmm. really, when the transactional management tools don't work anymore, that's when you go to the leadership tools, which is you sitting down with them and asking them what is going on. And so I think that that manager, the biggest challenge that new manager has It will depend on the relationship that they have with their previous manager, the amount of education that they've had on how to manage. And by the way, that can come from just experience. Like maybe they coached a soccer team or a basketball team when they were younger or they were captain of a team and they they understood teamwork and they understood the importance of having people's back and they understood the importance of being other focused and being helpful to others. Like those are things that are successful within teamwork. So depending on their history and their experience with management will dictate kind of how they lead. And the other point that I'd like to make on this is that when people are promoted from within their peers, it's nice if the peers recommended that person to be the manager of their team. Because if that did not happen, if they were selected to be the leader of the team, then you've got this gamble going on as to whether the people are going to buy in to this person being the leader. You know, you're sure you're the manager now. You've been promoted. You are, we're being told that you're our manager. But what were you like as a team player? This individual that you're talking about, how great a team player was this person before they were promoted versus just being maybe the most tenured, you know, they've worked there the longest, or maybe they're just the most technical. Do you have any idea about that? Both of those are true, most technical and most tenured. Okay. And that is, by the way, the majority of people that are promoted in the US, certainly the UK too, and I'm sure other countries around the world. You've been here the longest. You are the most skilled. Maybe you get the biggest sales results. Therefore, we're going to promote you. And that depends on whether you have a tenure-based system. A lot of organizations will just, whoever's been here three or four years. And sometimes that happens just because turnover is so high. It's whoever's still here. I've seen that too. That leads to a fairly mediocre level of performance. But you have this decision to make as an organization as to what are you going to reward and what culture do you want to create? And if you want to create a culture that's results-based only or results-based primarily, and that's really the only thing you're really rewarding, then that's what you're going to get. But if you are cultivating a leadership culture, it doesn't matter whether you're the janitor, the newest employee, the senior salesperson, or the sales manager, just using sales as an example. If you have a mindset of teamwork, if you're a great team player, 
and you're willing to take a few risks and you're willing to make some big decisions and you can be competitive if necessary, you can have the back of your team, then you're going to be seen as kind of a captain within that group. And at the moment that you're seen as a captain within that group, and by the way, you're typically, well, actually, let me ask you, from the teams that you've worked in, how would you recognize a captain within that group? A couple of different ways. From the captain's perspective, taking on more responsibility, looking out for the best interest of the rest of the team, they have assumed a leadership and responsibility role and not from an authoritarian situation. I have some children who are on a sports team who they have somebody who tries to be captain. They come home shaking their heads like, dad, we don't know how to tell him to stop, but he's not good at it. And then I see when the others are looking for leadership or they're looking for input, who do they go to? Who are the followers, like you described earlier, who are the followers self-selecting as their choice of captain? Who are they willingly going to follow in, in the battle, into the, right. into the fight? And usually that comes from you know, having the person they go to is usually reasonably competent mm-hmm. and has their interests primarily. The people that grab power are either no longer competent, but maybe they were once. I remember playing soccer with someone who used to be very competent and certainly had good leadership skills. So they did actually sort of know how to rally people. But their skill set had been impacted over the years. And so it was kind of hard to maintain the same level of respect because the competency was now unreliable, even though some of those leadership skills were pretty good. So in the example that you're giving, the captain, they're still deemed as competent, even if their quality of their individual performance is not as high as it used to be. Usually we're willing to forgo that because their experience as a leader is really worth a lot and their ability to rally the team is really good. So I think the goal of a lot of leaders with teams is to build as many captains as possible. You look at any great basketball team, baseball team, soccer team, whatever you want, right? You are going to find captains all over that field, all over the court. I mean, what's your favorite sport, Alan? Football. American football. (laughs) It's not all about the quarterback, is it? I bet if you found your best team, my guess is they have captains all over the place. Is that fair? What's your favorite team? Michigan. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing Michigan in the background (laughs) there. Okay. Michigan football Perfect. Well, I'm in Penn State area, so you'll have to excuse the allegiance that I have. I'm also a new part-time faculty up there, so I have to be rooting for Penn State. But, But if we bring this back to earth a little bit in relation to your challenge, how do we create captains throughout the team? And primarily every single person that is joining the team can become a captain of the team. Because at the end of the day, to be a captain, fundamentally, you need to have great teamwork skills and you need to have people's back and you need to be able to perform, right? But more often than the case, it's those high drive, high talking people that grab the power if it's up for grabs. You know, if I ask people, if I make a round of coffees, and I put it out in front of a group of people and I say, who would like to grab the first coffee? You can be sure it's going to be those high drivers, high dominant people. We all want coffee or we all want tea. We're all thirsty. But there are going to be some people that don't hesitate, that just go and grab it, right? And they're not necessarily the right people to represent the group, but they're the first people to grab the power or in this case, to grab the coffee. So understanding that groups will find their own leaders is very helpful. But if they don't find their leader and the management put a leader in there and they don't really respect that person, there's going to be challenges. 
So anyway, let me bring it back to your point earlier on, your question earlier on, because I'm conscious of time a little bit. What can you do? Firstly, you can really unpack the relationship between the positions that you're talking about. I don't know what the title is, but let's just call them operations for a second. The relationship between operations and upper management. You can be involved in that. You don't need to tell them what to do, but you could certainly ask them how they're measuring success. How often are they measuring success? And what do they do if success is not met? What are the consequences for not meeting those success metrics? Have those conversations happened before between you and management? Slightly. I mean, the answer that's ringing in my head is, what is the measure of success? I don't know exactly, but the profit margins are hailed pretty high because that is what the incentive is, is, you know, if we make profit, that's going to be shared among the group. I think there's becoming a disconnect. People are just waiting to see if it's going to happen. And I don't know. And there's another book that I'm reading right now. talks about educating the regular people, educating the employees about how is revenue created? How does that happen? Everybody comes in, put in their time, does their tasks. But how does that translate into the bottom dollar? I don't know that our team understands that. What are the activities that impact it positively? What are the activities that impact it negatively? How does what they do impact the size of their profit sharing check? Do you think that they see a connection between what they do day to day and the bottom line for the business? I don't think so. Do you think they see a connection? I doubt it. Do you think they see what the end user does with the service that you're providing? Nope. So maybe not so much the profit of the business, but the actual end user? I'm suspicious that they do not. So maybe there's just a little bit of a disconnect in their mind as to why they're working and what they're getting out of it. And if all I'm getting out of it is my pay... And I don't really get any satisfaction because like, for example, I get paid for coaching people and that gives me some satisfaction, but I get a lot of satisfaction when someone I'm coaching writes to me, thanks me, or puts me in touch with someone else or whatever, has some successful promotion or something like that. Like that gives me satisfaction. So when you look at the work that the operations people or what's the department that we're talking about here? Let's call it service. Service. Okay. So what do the service people get out of working other than paid, Mm -hmm. right? Do they get a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction because they know what the customer is going to do with their work, right? Do they get a sense of satisfaction because the business has made more money? And so that subsequently they get more of a financial bonus, but also they're sort of on board with the vision of the company. If you don't know the answer to those questions, that is an opportunity for you to sit down with them and find out what they think. What are their beliefs? What are their attitudes about the impact of their job? How much do they know about or care about the relationship between what they're doing and the end user or between what they're doing and the profits of the business? What normally happens is when organizations are very hierarchical, meaning you've got top level management and then there's like a big gap and then you've got services and maybe you're in the middle of those, maybe there are other managers in the middle. But if there's not really a lot of communication between those two levels, there is usually a big gap. And within that gap, there are misunderstandings. There is a good chance that people are not going to be motivated because they just don't see the point of working harder. Like, where does it really help me? And then, of course, the other thing is like the incentives. You spoke about there being a sliding scale of incentives, depending on how much experience you've got at the company and your title, et cetera. Well, if that is the case, the profit of the whole organization, it may not mean as much to the people lower down because they're not going to get a very big check at the end of the year. 
And maybe they're going to get a check. They're not going to get a check. Like maybe they don't really see the connection between what they're doing and them getting a check. I mean, when was the last time they didn't get a profit-related pay bonus at the end of the year? Right. Yeah. It's been a while because things have been going well. So if things are going well, they're going to get their check. The question would be, if they work harder, is that check going to really increase dramatically? Is it going to decrease if they don't work hard? Or is it going to be roughly the same, give or take a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, regardless of how well they perform? Right. I think that is the issue. That's one of the main issues, yeah. So parts of it, it sounds like, is, again, going back to the incentives. But I think that that lack of connection between that profit-related pay and the work they're doing is that it probably doesn't really matter what they do to affect this bonus, as long as they do sort of the minimum. So yes, you're not going to have the incentive there, but also they're just not thinking about the profit of the company. I don't know, again, without speaking to them, I don't know, but they're probably not thinking about or caring about the profit of the company because it's just not in their mind. Like if we don't make a million bucks by the end of the quarter, we're going out of business, we're going to make redundancies. That is basically a big stick behind you to care about the profit of the company because you're worried about your job. If it's like, we got to make a million by the end of the quarter, then we're all going to double our bonus. Well, hey, I'm going to double my bonus. So I'm going to really work toward that. And I'm going to care. And even if I can't do anything to control the success of the company, I'm rooting for everybody to be successful because I'm going to financially benefit from it at the end. Right. So again, that's all like financial connections to why should they care? What's in it for me? Right. This is the WIFM that people talk about. I do contract work with a company called Bartel and Bartel, and we do this leadership training and we talk about WIFMs. And if you don't know what someone's WIFM is, what's in it for me or what's in it for them, you can't give it to them. So if I'm going to get that reward and I have like no particular motivation, but you're going to give me the reward anyway, then I'm not going to associate that reward with my performance. And so what you're left with is just like how hard somebody wants to work, how much they believe in the culture, the product, the service that they're making. That's where you, when money is not in the equation, apart from individual ambition, right, which we know is one of the biggest predictors of success, right? A bit of IQ, a bit of hard work, a bit of integrity, That combination is usually what I think Warren Buffett, actually, that's what he said is like his main ingredients for hiring people is IQ, energy, and integrity, right? So if you have all those three things, you're going to be a high performer. But if an organization wants to get high performance out of you and they're not getting it, even though maybe you do have those three things, you've got to look at those incentives. You've got to look at how much they care about the product, the service, how much they care about the customer, and also how much they care about management. Because if I work for you and I don't respect you, either because I don't think you're competent or I just don't think you've really had my back or I just don't think you've really developed me in any way, I don't think you've really helped me and put energy into me, then why should I work for you? And management say, well, hold on, you're working for me because we've got a deal going on here. Like I pay you, you work. But finally, after a while, that wears off. We're humans. If we were just robots, that would be fine. But we're humans and we want more than just our paycheck. We want more than just a transactional relationship. Now, not everybody. Some people are happy getting their paycheck, doing their work, going home, being rewarded. But a lot of people prefer to actually have somebody that they like working for them. People want to work for someone that's invested in their success. And so I think going back to the service people that you're talking about, I would be interested in their attitudes about their leadership. I would be interested in their attitudes about the customer. 
I would be interested in their attitudes about the product and service that they make. I would be interested in their attitudes about how they feel about not performing to the level that is needed in order to keep everybody happy. That's what you can do, Alan. That's the role that you can play is to sit down with these stakeholders and get into their head, not to plant a seed, not to tell them to work harder, but just to understand their attitudes about all these different things that could all predict why they're not performing and why they're not as engaged as perhaps you are. Well, that was worth the price of admission right there. (laughs) Yeah, that's been my suspicion. Like, I know that attacking the process isn't going to fix the problem. The process need to be fixed, but it's more about the mentality. I mean, all these things that you've just laid out, attitudes about all those things, leadership, customer products is the issue. It'd be interesting once you speak to them to find out which one of those they are passionate about the most, which one are they upset about the most, which one are they indifferent to the most. I think that they're all potential factors or issues that will help you predict the solution. Because right now, yeah, okay, the short-term solution is get it done, right? The long-term solution, you know, we do say in, in our world that you can require a behavior, you can't require an attitude. So managers typically focus on short-term behaviors. And if you were a manager of them, you could say, hey, listen, just get it done. You work for me. But leaders change attitudes over time. And to do that, they have to be invited in to someone's head to find out what's in there, their own attitudes, and then to have such a respectful relationship that they're actually open to your questions and consideration to maybe some new information or some new perspectives to change their attitudes, right? So I think where you're at is you're still at that early phase where you need to spend enough time with them to really, when you're done with that conversation with any of those service people, you should be just like data gathering and hypothesizing and just asking them, is there anything you can do to help? Mm-hmm. And I think really what you will get once you're done with that conversation, and it could be a series of conversations that you have with the same person over multiple times, doesn't have to be all in one go, but you are going to walk away from that knowing where the pain areas are. And from there, you can say, okay, well, who can actually solve those pain areas? Well, if it is a leadership issue, then the people they report to have got to solve those issues. If it's an accountability issue, the leaders are going to have to step up and be more accountable. But I think until we understand the attitudes of the follower, or in this case, the subordinate or the service team, whatever you want to call them, it's really difficult to know if just like management changes would solve that problem or systematic things like having success metrics having some kind of accountable measurement of them and and holding people accountable, that, that kind of comes into it too. So that's how I would suggest you approach the service people. And what do you think, Alan, they're going to think about you after those conversations? What do I think they're going to think or what do I want them to think? You know, it's two different questions. What do you think? Uh, I guess both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer both, but the question I want to answer is, what do I think they're thinking? I think the jury is out on the service people. Like, what's Nathan doing here and what's his role? Whose side is he on? Is he on the partner side or is he on our side, if there are two sides? That's interesting, yeah. I want to come back to that because I don't really understand what you mean by sides. Right, that's good. It seems as though they're an us versus them mentality. You know, we have the partners who are trying to push. We have the service people who are dragging their feet. What I want people to see is that I'm for everybody. I'm there for the success of the company. I want to see everybody improve. Well, I think because of your role, you are in the middle. You said that at the very beginning. And so in a way, you're like, if I think of these like three different 
groups that you're supporting. You've got the customers on one side, you've got the service team on another side, and then on the other side of the triangle, you've got management. And it sounds like because the customers are not necessarily getting everything they want from the service people, you know, you basically have to be the person that goes to both the customer and the service people and find out what's going on and provide whatever you can provide in terms of helping them to think things through logically. But ultimately, if that doesn't work, you've got to look at management and say, hey, I know what the issues are. The people that are doing this job are not able to do their job. They need more help or they're just not doing their job. They could do it, but they're not. At which point, again, you have to work with management. But I think you are powerless in the fact that you can't require anything and your influence is limited because you have not built a leader follower relationship with either group yet. It sounds like you might have a little bit more of a leader follower relationship with your customer. It sounds like you may have a bit of a leader follower relationship with management. I don't know the extent of it, but it sounds like they are leaning on you for advice. It sounds like they're starting to sort of say, what can you do to help us, Alan? So in that sense, you are building a leader follower relationship, meaning that I don't know if you see them as leaders, but it's starting to look like they may see you as a leader as well as perhaps a follower of theirs. So you know, if you can build a leader follower relationship between you and management and you and the service team and you and the customer in a sense that you follow them in some respects and they follow you in some respects, because that's not always a leader follower relationship. You could follow me and I don't follow you. But in your position, you really do need to have that mutual respect going on. Because if you can then position yourself in the middle, then all you're really doing is helping them communicate. Your main job, as I see it, is to help customer and service communicate better when they hit a wall, to help service and the leadership communicate better again when they hit a wall. And it sounds like they have hit a wall and really your role is to mediate, to coach and to be able to present to upper management what the service team are missing. And part of that might be, hey, more leadership, whether they want to give it to them or not is up to the management to decide. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. And that's kind of how I've seen my role is the communications. There's this uncertainty, the courage and the boldness to step into these things can wane at times. But having these kind of conversations, I think definitely help to, okay, yeah, these are some of the things I've been thinking. It helps bolster my courage to keep moving in these directions and giving me more things to think about as well how to go about it. Alan, why do you think you need courage to do this? Like, What's the downside? What's the risk for you to be doing this? Or is it just that you're getting fatigue from banging your head against the wall? It's not fatigue yet, although I have been in that position in the past in different roles, different organizations. In a leadership, I mean, even if it's through influence, is risky. What if they don't follow? What if I don't know? What if I do it wrong? They just go on down the laundry list of what ifs, right? Like um, self-doubt, you mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Although I have done this before. I have done it well before. I've done it poorly in the past. <laughs> so just wanting it to go well and not, not wanting to do damage or to do anything that degrades the relationship personally, professionally, or corporately for the organization. You know, I don't want to cast a shadow in any of those areas. Alan, let me ask you, do you have a relative? Do you have like a, a parent or a grandparent that was kind of fit that leader could have been maybe a teacher or just somebody that didn't necessarily have power over you, but you just held them in such a high regard. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Many, 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 many. Is there anyone that stands out for you and you don't have to name them by name, but like some kind of role that they played in your life? 
Yeah. The first one was a mentor of mine when I was in high school, took me under his wing and just took me along with him everywhere. Just really showed me his life and how he made things work and was just open to any conversation about any topic. Just highly relational, highly, highly relational. I like that example that you've given, because really that's an example of someone who doesn't have power over you, but that you really were interested in, in listening to this person because they were interested in listening to you. They were interested in sharing their time with you. And I think it's something that's cultivated over a long time period. Think about the amount of interactions you had with that individual. Think about the amount of long conversations you had with that individual. It took time to build the relationship. It took time to build that trust, right? So when you think about your role in your organization with the service team or even with upper management, you got to be patient because look at the amount of long conversations you've actually had with those people. I bet if you actually were to clock how much time you've sat down individually, right? One-on-one with each of these service people. I bet it's nowhere near as much time as you spent cultivating that relationship with this mentor that you're talking about. Right, yeah. So if you want someone to see you as a leader to them, in the short term, if there was an emergency and they were desperate for someone to come in and save the day and you sort of ripped your shirt open and you got the Superman logo up there and you come to the rescue with your big ideas and your credibility, fine. Those are situations where emerging leaders can rise from whatever, right? But when you are not in that kind of crisis situation and you don't have the authority because they don't report directly to you, you're now in this other kind of like the aunt, the uncle kind of role, the grandparent kind of role, the person that kind of floats in. You didn't kind of need them. You didn't kind of expect them, but they have a question for you that makes you think. Or even they can see that you're blocked and the only way for you to unblock is to either open up and talk about all the challenges you've got or for you to go and whisper something to the leadership and say, I think they need your help. And suddenly help comes. And at the end of the day, you're there to unglue the problems that people are sticking with, right? You're there to be the person that floats around the organization. I think a lot of successful organizations have someone like this that floats around, everyone kind of knows them. Sometimes they're the office manager, sometimes they're HR, sometimes they're senior leadership, sometimes they're like one position below senior leadership. Sounds like that's kind of where you are. And if that is the role that you take on, eventually people will all see you as someone who they can talk to and someone who's not going to judge them, someone who's not going to throw them under the bus to management, somebody who is wise, and also someone that helps create change. But that takes time and it takes you being kind of there for them and just showing up and really taking on the responsibility of keeping communication flowing around the organization as smoothly as possible. And that may seem fairly exhausting. And that's if it does, it's because that's a temporary solution. This is not a long-term strategy. This is just to get the wheels working. You know, it's kind of like, Having an old machine that you're running around pushing leave, pushing buttons, pulling levers, using some string, using some tape. I mean, it's kind of the entrepreneur's first few years usually. And it's just about keeping everything working, right? But that is a temporary solution. The bigger solution is to actually encourage independent internal accountability and eventually taking your hands away from each of those three cogs, if you want, or the corners of the triangle and saying, I'm not involved anymore. Right. What happens? Yeah, exactly. It's a fantastic moment when that happens. You know, I've experienced that before. It's like, <laughs> I had one team. 
always leading. Uh, I was hands-on week to week. And then the last week I was injured and I got pulled out of the team and they had to run the week on their own. And within the first 24 hours, when I returned to the team, they're like, we've been trying to figure out how we can cover your responsibilities and none of us can figure out what you do. (laughs) We're running everything and we've been doing it for a few weeks now. (laughs) I'm like, you nailed it. I'm just now, I'm just observing. Yeah, it's a fun moment when that happens. The team can go and they're independent and they're functioning and yeah, hitting all cylinders. It's great. Yeah. It's great. I think sometimes managers are uncomfortable by that because they think, well, but hold on, shouldn't I be doing something? It's like, yeah, but you know, when you really cultivate a really great team, eventually you do yourself out of a job. That's the purpose of being a great leader, that you can leave for a week or two. And then the question will be, well, hold on a second. Do we need Alan anymore? Okay. But you know what? We're not going to fire Alan because his team are working really well. We're going to promote him. We're going to move him to another team or we're going to give him a bigger responsibility because he's cultivated that idea of leadership. The fact that no one knew what you do, obviously, it also frees you up to think about the strategy. It frees you up to do this development of people. A lot of managers I talk to, they're like, I don't have time to do this leadership stuff. Yeah, because you're not delegating right? and right. you're not training people effectively and you're keeping the projects that you like to do. Because it brings value, it brings purpose, it brings self-worth. It's like I've observed and I learned and I experienced that the more I can set myself free to allow people to succeed, it's a far better outcome. Far, far better outcome. I love that. I love that, Alan. Uh, (laughs) Well, Alan, I hope this has been useful to you. I know I kind of fired a lot at you today. In in typical coaching arrangements that are more longer term, you sort of establish what the goals are at the beginning of the conversation. And we sort of just dived into some of the challenges you've got. What is it that you're going to take from this session and you know, how are you going to move forward? I think the biggest thing is starting to dive deeper in the attitudes about leadership, about customers, about products. I took a bunch of notes while I was listening, going down through here for things I wanted to remember. Yeah, just finding out what motivates people. That's a big, big deal. And serving as that, somebody else, when I explained my job, they're like, you're a communication specialist. I'm like, I love that. Knowing what my skill set is, knowing the role that I play and knowing that it is beneficial and it's going to take more time. It it is just time, which I knew, but to have that confirmed and validated is fantastic. Yeah. The relationship, I mean, it really just comes down to the relationships is a really big deal. I like thoughts about groups will find their own leaders, seeing who the group is following naturally versus who they were told to follow. You know, I want to pay more attention to that and try to see if I can observe that just in the in the interactions and see who really is the leader here and capitalize on that. I think that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you bringing those up. I do think as one thing to add to that is have a think about what is the culture in your whole organization? Is it a leadership culture? what's missing from it becoming and being a leadership culture. Because it feels like from what you're saying, there are some people in the organization that may not feel that it's a leadership culture and that might be impacting how much effort they put in, et cetera. So that might be something to also kind of look at and try and measure once you're done with all of these conversations. So I want to thank you very much, Alan, for kickstarting this series of coaching how to influence people, I guess, and how to deal with some of the headaches that management have. So thank you very much. And I hope that we get another opportunity to dig into some other challenges that you and your company have in the next couple of months. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time. This is Business Psychology Unplugged.